We all love to hear stories where there is a huge transformation for the better, right? What we sometimes call a rags-to-riches story. Everybody loves those stories, right? Don't you? We love to hear in our fairy tales about poor Cinderella who went from a mistreated stepdaughter to wearing a beautiful gown and glass slippers and becoming a princess. Watch those stories over and over again. Or we love stories of real life. We love to hear about an Andrew Carnegie who was born very destitute, came to the United States from Scotland as a young man through hard work and an incredible, keen business mind, he eventually became the richest man in the world. He gave most of it away at the end of his life. But what a story, right? From rags to riches, incredible transformation in this guy's life. In the sports world, perhaps the football game of the year is today. As Tom Brady returns to his old stomping grounds to play his team, the New England Patriots. Tom Brady, in 1999, was the 199th draft pick of the NFL draft. In other words, 198 other players were picked in front of Tom Brady. Nobody had any idea that this skinny quarterback from Michigan would go on to become one of the greatest players of pro football history. And of course, for some Patriots fans today, they're hoping that he goes from rags to riches and back to rags. (laughs) Maybe just for today, right? We love these stories. We could listen to them all day long. Of all the transformation stories, did you know that you are part of the greatest transformation story? There is no other transformation story that compares to the story of transformation that takes place with the church. There is no greater transformation story than what God has done, is doing, and finally will do with the church. Why would I say that? Well, before coming to know Christ, Scripture teaches that we were spiritually dead. We did not know God at all. We had no hope of eternal life. When we become Christians, our lives radically change, don't they? And this is the beginning of the transformation. It's the beginning of it. We all know that the transformation isn't complete. There's still some rags lying around, aren't there, in our lives. We're not there totally spiritually speaking in terms of spiritual riches. As we look around the church now, we can grow easily discouraged. The church struggles all across this land with doctrinal compromise. The church has leaders who fall into sin and their fall harms their people, and brings reproach upon the name of Christ. The church is persecuted around the world. The church unnecessarily divides over secondary matters. 
from our vantage point now, the church doesn't look like much in terms of numbers and influence. And I would say individually, we often feel disappointed and frustrated with our own lives as we see our own sin and our own lack of spiritual growth and knowing there's so much more that I could be doing and living for the glory of God. But thankfully, the story's not over, amen? In Revelation 21, we see how the church will appear at the end when Jesus returns. What a difference. What a difference. And it is incredibly encouraging and remarkable for us to see that we're no longer going to be affected by sin. We're no longer going to be uh, in fear of death. We're going to be fully redeemed by God and reflect His radiant glory. We're going to reign with Christ We are His treasured possession. We're going to be gathered together from all over the world in an indivisible unity. And nothing can ever change our destiny. We are secure forever. And perhaps that's the most amazing aspect of this complete transformation is that unlike all the great stories of now, This story is never going to end. It's going to go on forever and ever, and it's going to be safe and secure. Church, this is no fairy tale or feel-good story. We trust this transformation is going to happen because Scripture declares it is so, and Scripture is entirely trustworthy. It has proven its trustworthiness. It declared that God created the universe out of nothing. Check. Declares that Jesus literally rose from the dead to show that he had conquered the grave. Check. It declares that if you believe in him, your life life will be transformed by the power of God. Check. And it promises that one day Jesus will return and complete the transformation. Check. And then the transformation will last forever. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation 21. In these last two chapters of Revelation, we're given a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like for Christians. This is what we've been waiting for, right? The last four or five months has been journeying through Revelation to come to this point. Last week, we, ex- we explored the last, or excuse me, the first eight verses. We saw that when Jesus returns, he's going to establish a new creation where no more tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain, all of it gone because the new creation is here. All things are new. So let's read verses 1 to 8. Can I get, I need a Bible in front of me here. I forgot about that part. We're going to read verses 1 to, thank you, verses 1 to 8 together to review from last week. And then we're going to pick up in verse 9 that focuses here in our passage before us today, the new Jerusalem. So let's go back and remind ourselves these great things that we saw last week. And then we're going to pick up in verse 9. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And here we pick up with the first part of our passage in verses 9 to 14. Then, I, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven plagues and spoke to me saying, come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels." And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. All right, so to start here in our passage, one of the twelve, excuse me, one of the angels who carried out the bold judgments comes and he speaks to John and he tells them that he's going to show him the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then John was carried away by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. The angel takes him to a high mountain and shows him a vision. Now, if you recall, this very similar thing happened in Revelation 17 when an angel took uh, John to see Babylon the Great, the prostitute. You remember that? Babylon the Great symbolized the the fallen world that's opposed to God. Now the bride symbolizes the church. Both of these women wear gold and jewels and precious stones and so forth and pearls, but their characters and their destinies are radically different, aren't they? So we're being kind of shown here a contrast between the two of them. Interestingly, the angel tells John, did you notice this? that he's going to show him the bride. But then what he sees next is the new Jerusalem. Did you catch that? All right, you got to read a little closer there, apparently. You got to catch that. In the Old Testament, we know that Jerusalem was the place where God's presence dwelt in the temple, but this is now the new Jerusalem. And what's fascinating is that the bride and the city are the same. The bride and the city are the same. Did you notice that in verse 2? John sees a city, and it's compared to a bride. 
And then we just saw in verse 9, John is told he's going to see the bride, but he sees a city. So the, the, the new Jerusalem is both a place and a people. So let's talk about this to make sure we're on the same page. So on one hand, the New Jerusalem, it is a place. It's called a city. They talk about foundations and gates and um, uh, walls and so forth. The New Testament book of Hebrews speaks of a future place several times. In Hebrews 11, chapter 6, when it's talking about Abraham, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There was no earthly city, okay? Then in verse 16, it says of various Old Testament heroes of the faith, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them what? A city. So the new Jerusalem is the place we're going to live in the new creation. But on the other hand, the New Jerusalem is a people. It just specifically said, this is the bride of Christ, which is the church. And we see this in Ephesians 5 when Paul talks about the church and he compares us to a bride of Christ. He says the church, or Jesus died for the bride so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So, you guys tracking? The New Jerusalem describes both who we are and where we are going to live. So, as we walk through this passage, you're going to see how it kind of fluctuates between the place and the people. That's just revelation. If In case we haven't caught on by now, okay, there's just a lot going on with revelation in this imagery. Now, with that in mind, let's keep exploring. So John gives this vivid description of the new Jerusalem. It has the glory of God in it. Did you see that? No doubt, because God is dwelling with us. And it has a great high wall. What would that symbolize? Well, it's showing that we are secure. In the ancient world, cities, they had to have a good, strong, high wall, didn't they? Because if not, they were going to get attacked. And so this wall is very high, right? And it has in each of the stations there, there's each of the gate, the 12 gates, who is posted there? An angel. So let me just tell you, friend, this gate is on lockdown, okay? There's a supernatural homeland security going on here. Nobody's getting past these angels, okay? And by the way, you don't see any sign of Peter at the gates, (laughs) right? You see an angel there. But with this security, I want you to just be encouraged that there is no danger of the things that you and I experience in this lifetime. There's no more sin. There's no more Satan. Church, the new creation is so much better than the Garden of Eden. Sometimes we think, oh, we're just going to go back to the Garden. No, we're going to have it better than the Garden, because in the Garden, who showed up after a while? Satan, right? No more. And it's not like, oh, 500 years later, he might show up. 
or we're going to start sinning after five million years. Gone. Just gone. You are safe. What a sense of joy that will be and comfort. Now, the city has 12 gates. On each gate is inscribed one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The city has 12 foundations, and inscribed on them is one of the 12 apostles. I think this is showing that the people of God is comprised of both Old Testament and New Testament believers. When I say the church, I think like fully understanding the church. That means the church from all time, all the way, from the beginning to the end. It's all of God's people is being talked about here. So the New Jerusalem is comprised of all faithful believers from both Old and New Testament. Let's keep going here in this incredible description, verses 15 to 21. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width or height and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the third emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So the angel takes out a measuring rod to measure the city, its wall, and its gates. Even even the measuring rods are better in the new creation, right? I mean, who needs plastic? Here's a gold measuring rod, right? Pretty cool. But I also want you to notice how the the, the shape there of the city. Did you notice that it's a cube? That the height and the width and the length, they're all the same. That's not just some kind of our architectural peculiarity. There's something really significant about that. Because in the Old Testament, there was another structure that was also a perfect cube. Anybody know what that was? In the temple, the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. That's where God's presence resided amongst all the people of Israel, was in the Holy of Holies. So what I think this is communicating is that God's presence is throughout the entire city. It's not just in one little location, but it pervades everywhere where God's people are. Heaven comes to earth. Does that get you excited? I mean, that is incredible what that is communicating there. The entire city is the holy of holies. Verses 19 to 20, when it gave the list of the jewels that adorned the city foundations, those jewels were related also to the Old Testament temple. Remember the high priest, he would come in once a year into the holy of holies, and he had a breastplate on, and he had 12 stones 
and those correspond to those 12 stones. And those stones had written on them one name of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he was representing, in a sense, the people before God. So all of this imagery, I think, shows God's presence among his people. Now, the size of the city is enormous. You might look down at your footnote there. It says a stadia, right? That's an that's a ancient measurement. So 12,000 stadia is equivalent to 1,380 miles, okay? So in case you need a little perspective on that, that's about half of the size of the United States, okay? Now, to remember, the height and the width and the length are the same. So also, that means there's going to be some very tall buildings, apparently, I did a little math there. That comes out to 7.3 million feet. The Empire State Building is 1,250 feet. 7.3 million feet. Did you get that? You guys awake? Yes. Yes, I hope there's no dust. <laughs> Because uh, cleaning those windows would not be too fun. You guys sometimes don't like cleaning maybe the building windows here for one level. Can you imagine 7.3 million feet? Wow, that's going to be something else. Now, these measurements may or, not, may or may not be actual. Who knows? Because the city wall and its dimensions are multiples of 12, and we know 12 symbolizes the people of God. So you can discuss that after church and come up, to, come up with your own conclusions. Now, in addition to the size of the city, the beauty of the city is stunning. Gold and jewels symbolize the splendor of the city. Verse 18, it said how the wall was made of jasper. The foundations were made of these precious stones. And the city itself is made of gold. But it said there, clear gold. Why on earth does it say clear gold? I don't know exactly. But my best guess would be is that it's clear, right, so that God's glory could just shine through it like light through a window. It's just going to pervade everywhere all around us. Verse 21, it says that the 12 gates were actually 12 pearls. And that's where we get our expression, right, the pearly gates. And one other thing about the city, you notice that it said the street right? The street of the city. It didn't say streets. So it just said street of the city. And it too is made of pure gold, like transparent glass. By the way, did you ever hear the story about the rich man who loved his wealth so much that he wanted to take some of it with him to heaven? And so he, don't, not yet, not yet. So he decided to pack up a suitcase full of gold bars, and he wanted to take it into heaven. And so when he came to the gate, he didn't see Peter. He saw an angel, right? That's what the Bible says there. He saw an angel, and the angel asked him what's in the suitcase, and so he opened it up. And the angel looked at him and was exasperated, and he said, why are you bringing pavement into the city here? Why is that so valuable to you? That's right. You're supposed to laugh at this point. 
I know it wasn't a great joke, but I thought it was okay and, and fit here. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate the thumbs up there. All right, let's go back to preaching. So let's read the rest of our passage. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring, it into, the, bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there is no temple here in the New Jerusalem. But better said, there's no physical temple. There is a temple there, isn't there? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Remember, God is with us. And so we don't need a temple anymore, do we? And also it says there's no more need for sun and moon because the glory of God gives its light. Now notice, it doesn't say that there is no more sun and moon. It just says that there is no more need for a sun or a moon anymore. I personally think those things will still be there because the old creation becomes the new creation. I think the standard features of this creation will carry over into the new creation, but somehow we won't need those things for light because of the glory of God will just shine forth in such a way. Maybe it's like if you have a candle, when it's dark, you need the candle, but if you turn all the lights on, you still have the candle, but you just don't need it like you needed it before. Just a thought. Verses 24 to 26, there is this discussion, this really fascinating discussion about the kings coming and going from the city. Who are the kings? Well, I believe it refers to the church. Recall, we have seen in the book of Revelation, several places, the church is called the kingdom of priests. We are called the kingdom of priests. And he seems to use kingdoms or kings and the nation synonymously as if it's just one group here. So I believe he's saying that we will bring glory and honor into the city. You say, what does that mean? What are we bringing exactly? What is that glory and honor supposed to be talking about? Here are two guesses that I would say. First, we will bring our work into the city. And the new creation, we will continue to work. Sorry if that's a bad thing for some of you. (laughs) But work is a good thing. God works, and he made us to work. We're a reflection of his image, and he wants us to work. The problem now is that as our work is plagued by our own sin and the sin of others, isn't it? But work's a good thing. And we will bring our work into the city. Art, music, sports, food, craftsmanship, learning, and so on. And you know what? This is what God called humanity to do in the first place in Genesis 1. He said, you are to have dominion over this earth. 
They were to go and spread out throughout the world and take dominion over it. Now, that doesn't mean we plunder the earth, as we sometimes do, but that we steward the earth. We care for the earth. We actually make the earth even better because of our input. And so perhaps that's what's going on here. And maybe we'll bring in our explorations from around the universe for those who like to think about those things. Who knows what we'll be doing in the new creation? I know one thing is for sure. It's not going to be boring as sometimes we think it is. So we might bring our work in. We also might bring in our worship. Why do I say that? Well, that phrase, glory and honor, and a couple times it's used it's flipped around. It says honor and glory. It's used four other times in the book of Revelation. And in every instance, it's talking about our worship. So I think that's a very real possibility too. God's people are just going to be worshiping. And we're going to come together and bring him glory and honor. And worship is going to be so wonderful in the new creation because we're not going to be distracted. We're not going to have our sin nature. And we're just going to gather together and have a grand old time praising God. We're going to bring in our glory and honor to the king, the king of kings. Now, finally, the passage closes with this statement. Only those who are followers of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will enter this city. So they're recorded in the Lamb's book of life. All of those who know Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you know if you are in the book of life? Do you know if you are a Christian? If you are not or maybe you're just kind of unsure, I would encourage you to firmly commit to Christ. To not leave this something, well, I'm not sure, maybe so, I don't know. To nail that down in your life, that you are going to be a follower of Christ. Because, you know, we shouldn't just assume in our minds. Sometimes we think, Everybody's going to go to heaven except the really bad people. You know, the serial killers, the genocide murderers, they won't be there, but everybody else is going to. No, it says those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who have chosen to follow Christ, they are the ones who will be in the new Jerusalem, the new creation. So we must know Christ personally. And he tells us, we need to turn from our sins, right? That's what separates us from him. And we need to stop pretending that we are the Lord of our lives, lowercase l, and recognize that he is the Lord, capital L. He's the boss. We surrender to him. And also we believe who he is, that he's the lamb, that he died for our sins, that he died in our place. He paid the ultimate price. He laid down his life and he paid the ultimate price in that he died as a substitute for you and I. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't pay that price, but Jesus did it in our place. He paid the price so that you and I could join and dwell in this incredible place and be his people for the rest of eternity. Make sure you are in the Lamb's book of life happen today if you will humble yourself, confess your sin, and believe that Jesus is God in human flesh who died for you.
as we close, let me just gather up a couple of the things we've been talking about in the message and, and put them together about this new Jerusalem. And I hope this encourages you. I think it's sometimes important that we spend more time thinking about what awaits us and the glories that await us. Let me start with the people, the, you, the church, the bride of Christ. As I look around this room, those who know Christ, all of us, we will be transformed. We will be transformed. You're no longer going to be plagued by sin. You're no longer going to be tempted in the areas of sin, of gossip and lust and greed and covetousness and so on. You're no longer going to have fear and shame and guilt. And you're going to be good, totally good. Not just good because people are watching you or because you don't want the fear, you know, you don't want to face punishment, but just good, inherently good. That's what you desire. And out of your life just flows love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth, the fruit of the Spirit. You will be absolutely glorious because you will manifest the glory of God in your life. It will radiate from you. I look forward to that day so much. To be who God has called me to be fully. That will be a great day. Let me discuss the place, the new Jerusalem, the place. You know, from last week, we talked about the new creation. It's going to be similar, dissimilar in some ways. More than likely, I think there's going to be those same fixtures like the earth and the, and the moon and the stars and the planets and the uh, flowers and trees and animals and so forth. It's only going to be better, though, because we're not going to have our sin mucking things up anymore. And so the natural new creations, it's going to be magnificent. Beyond that, we're also going to have this place where we dwell, the city. And it's going to be absolutely amazing, whether it's God doing all the designing, whether he's using us to do all the designing, or some combination of both. It's just going to be amazing, isn't it? I mean, you think about some of the things that humanity can make. It's wonderful, it's powerful, it's great, it's glorious. And to think about this is going to be everywhere we look. Now, in terms of going beyond that, I hesitate, I pull back. Because I don't know if the new Jerusalem is going to be kind of the capital city, right, of the new earth, new creation, and the rest is going to be nature. Or if the new Jerusalem is, is, you know, is, just, is kind of going to be spread out throughout the earth. I don't know. And I don't know how much is going to be nature and how much is going to be city. But I know that it's going to be some, it seems like it's going to be some kind of combination of both. And it's going to be glorious and magnificent. And whatever the details are, I think we can trust God, can't we? He knows how to do all things well. But our new home is going to be amazing. And what a future, church, this is going to be. Just think about some things. Think about working at different interests and projects that you have in this life that you've never had the time or the ability to pursue. I mean, Life, got, life goes by so fast, and, and there's just no, you can only scratch the surface of some of the things we would like to do. Not there. 
Think about working together with other believers, working on projects and things like that. You know, working together sometimes can be a real pain in this life, right? Because we're battling with each other, sin, competition, all that stuff. But isn't it great when you get together with a team and you do something together? It is so rewarding, isn't it? Can you imagine just for a moment what that's going to be like to work with others, multitudes of others, pulling things off together? It's just astounding, isn't it? Think about fellowship with peoples from all over the planet with no language barriers. You know, we meet people from different parts of the world and instantly, unless they can, we share a language, we just can't get very far, can we? but not there. Think about learning their stories and the greatness of God displayed in their lives. Think about worshiping together, nations of the earth gathering together for worship with the different styles of music and cultures and so forth. Think about just savoring that diversity and how it all would complement each other as we are praising God together. And in the midst of all of that, uh, thinking about how we're going to have that uh, countless multitudes of heavenly angels and all of God's people praising him in mass multitudes. I mean, it's great to be, you know, in our church, but isn't it kind of also an exciting thought to think about being with thousands and thousands and thousands and just praising God together. And in the midst of even all of that, to know we have total security, to not worry about sin or Satan anymore, to be completely safe in the arms of the Lord. Church, we should think more about our future and rejoice knowing what awaits us. You are indeed part of the greatest transformation story that has ever existed. Praise God for that. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much you have made all this possible. And Lord, our hearts are filled with gratitude at your goodness. You are good, so, so good. God, we pray that you would help us to fix our minds on things above. Not to escape reality, but to be more than conquerors in our reality because of what you have in store for us. Lord, we look forward to that day with such great anticipation. We think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, that promises what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And Lord, we pray for someone here today that knows they're not part of the Lamb's book of life, or maybe is unsure of that. Lord, I pray that this day they would come to you come to you on your terms, humbled by their sin, wanting to confess those things, to be right with you, and to believe that Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God who died for their sins so that they can know you for the rest of eternity. We thank you so much for, Lord, these powerful words. Hope and pray that, Lord, that they would encourage each heart and mind this day. You've given us so much to look forward to, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.